Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Thanks so much, Skylar and Josh, for being with us. The floor is all yours. Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you tonight. I appreciate James hosting us on the show. I, I'm really excited to be able to get to have a, another debate with Cliff and Stuart. Very fine uh, gentlemen, in my opinion. I love what they do on their YouTube channel and uh, what they do on college campuses because I love the idea of you know them going out and challenging youth uh, on their basic assumptions, right? And giving them um, something to think about and not to just assume necessarily all those things. Uh, so what I, what I wanted to start off with, um, you know, when I start this, this, this kind of how I was going to approach an ethics debate about the Old Testament, I was like, you know, I really need to get back and kind of read and dig a little deeper. And, and kind of as I read, uh, I thought I would go over some specific passages with you that I think will directly relate to Old Testament ethics and kind of give you a, a, a much bigger and detailed picture uh, of what it was like at the time. And well, at least what's articulated in the Bible is what I should say. So I, you know, let's go with one of the key figures, uh, you know, Abraham, for instance. In, in fact, a lot of the verses that we're going to be dealing with are going to be directly uh, connected to him. Uh, as you, many of you may know, there's a couple of reasons you may know Abraham. Um, for those of you at, who uh, are out there, they're not as familiar uh, with the Old Testament. Uh, let me give you some examples, right? Uh, this is the guy who, uh, when he died, uh, actually donated. Uh, what, what was that? I mean, it says, uh, for the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days of age must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner. Now, this was uh, part of the covenant that Abraham had made with God. Uh, and if you notice here, first of all, uh, circumcision is kind of like, I could use words like gentle mutilation, uh, because that's really what it would kind of be more like in those times. Uh, and, and you think about, first of all, he's got to do this. And then he's got to have his slaves, which interesting enough, there you know, slavery is not going to be a big thing we're kind of touching on here. Uh, but it does kind of, it says that you have to do the people who were, including those who were born in your household and bought with money from a foreigner. It's interesting that you could buy people from foreigners. Uh, but like I said, that's not what I really want to touch on too heavily. There's so much I want to talk about with Abraham uh, because I want to keep going with it. Uh, you might remember Abraham also is the the, the man that was tested by, by God and, uh, you know, was told that he had to sacrifice his son. Uh, and of course, at the last minute, uh, you know, God told Abraham, you know, you, sh you know, don't, don't kill him. Um, but this kind of shows you more of Old Testament ethics, like the way a God would treat human beings, right? So for some reason, God needed, I don't, needed uh, Abraham to uh, prove 
that he trusted God. I mean, you could use different words for it, but overall, the end, the end result is: Did he trust God? Did he did he love God? Did he believe what God said was going to happen, or to be faithful to? All right. So, but you know, God God spared him, right? So later on, you move on in Abraham's life. We get to a point where now he's 99 years old. Uh, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you, and you will be greatly increased in your numbers. So these numbers that Abraham is gifted, right? We get these lands that are going to come up later on in the Old Testament, because now, you know, He's made a covenant with Abraham. These, the descendants of Abraham are going to have these lands um, that they're going to have to go conquer to, you know, to get, of course. But that will move on to when we get over here to Deuteronomy 20, right? So as you got to remember, as these lands now belong to the Israelites, but, you know, there are people there. Like there are a bunch of cities actually there. Uh, and, you know, I'll kind of give you a, a little layout. As we read it, you'll, you'll understand better what I'm saying here. So this is what he's saying through to Moses uh, about how Moses and his people are going to have to go, you know, well, Joshua will, will have to go and take these cities. So anyways, when you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall be, uh, let's see here, shall be forced to work for uh, labor. If you refuse to make, uh, sorry, it's blocking my view here. I'm going to skip down. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put the sword all to all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourself. So now we have a situation of the descendants of Abraham, uh, you know, you're going into cities to, you know, and they can take women and children as plunder. And you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you for your enemies. This is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. Now, this is a key thing. This is kind of like the slavery thing where you have, hey, you got to treat, you know, the Israelites one way. But however, you know, you non-Israelites, foreigners, you can have them as slaves. I don't want to talk about slavery this debate. If you want to know about slavery, Dr. Josh Bowen has a fantastic book, like two of them on there. Anyways, but as I digress, digress. Uh, <laughs> uh, so we have him, we have God taking people as women plunder. Uh, these are the nations, the, these are the nations that haven't been promised to the Israelites, right? These are the uh, these are the nations outside of that. Now, however, verse sixteen, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you his inheritance. Do not leave anything that breathes. Completely destroy them: the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites. We can go through them. There's a little ites, and there's about six or seven of them. All right, and all of them get wiped out completely. Anything that breathes. This will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the uh, and you and you will sin against the Lord your God. So, I just want to point out we have this distinction here, right? So, right now we have Old Testament God's trying to get things done. God's made a promise; these lands have got to go to Abraham's descendants because He made a covenant. 
So now all those people had civilizations. Like civilization, these are children, babies, full adults, complete civilizations. And they just came in and were like, hey, it's ours now. God promised it and killed and massacred everybody in it, including little children. Uh, it's hard to believe, frankly, uh, as I was reading it today, uh, how almost anybody could believe this at some level. I was reading through this chapter. It's, it's, you're kind of stuck in, in, a, in a lot of different positions, I think, if, if we're going to take a lot of that kind of narrative. And if we give it up, if we go into this hyperbolic language, we're like, oh, a lot of this is hyperbolic. You know, it's not really God saying go in and kill everybody. Uh, it, it really doesn't work because at that point, like it really loses most of the Old Testament with Joshua in the, in the conquest. Like, what were they doing then if they're not killing everybody? I mean, there's literally scripture, I think it was Deuteronomy 17, where it's talking about how they're going to take over the houses. Like, literally, they're going to execute all the people and just move in, basically, is what the idea was. At least that's what's articulated in the Old Testament. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Josh. I don't know if you have anything left. I'm so sorry if I talked too much and there was something you wanted to say. No, I, I, I think you, you covered it fine. We can... We can move into therapy. Thank you very much, guys. Good job. You got it. Thank you, gentlemen. And also want to let you know, folks, we are very excited for an upcoming debate this Friday. You don't want to miss it. In particular, you guys, on the screen right now at the bottom right, the book of Daniel, Forgery or Prophecy, that's coming up this Friday. Dr. Josh will be in that debate, in fact. And so that's going to be an epic one, as he will be partnering, partnering with Jim Majors against Jonathan Sheffield and Dr. Boyce. So that will be an epic one. You don't want to miss it. Hit that subscribe button and that notification button so you don't miss it. And with that, thanks so much, Cliff and Stuart. We're thrilled to have you guys here. And with that, the floor is all yours. James, thanks for having us on. Gents, great to be with you both again. Have enjoyed every conversation with you both. Uh, YouTube channels, Ask Cliff or Give Me an Answer. And yeah, this is obviously a difficult difficult one to tackle, just like the slavery issue that we did not too long ago with Josh. For me, though, I would say the goodness of God always supersedes these tough passages and where he is certainly judging, where he certainly is, there's that type of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you see judgment coming. You look at the book of Judges, and you see the Israel Israelites and how they're judged, they themselves. It's not like they get off scot-free. Uh, it's this cyclical type of motion where they are following God, following his rules, living well because of it, flourishing because of it. Then they sin, fall away, fall into all types of debauchery, fall into idol worship, fall into any and everything you could think of. I mean, even a type of infanticide. And so God judges them because they're becoming like the other nations in many ways, and they're not listening to him. But then what happens? They reach out and oftentimes, it doesn't even seem like they don't even really reach out. Instead, it's God taking the step again, first step again, again, and again, throughout the entire book of Judges, where he is saying, I forgive you, now follow again. And we think, okay, wow, what, what an arrogant, manically, just, I mean, how, how do you even deal with a God like that who just says, follow me and everything will be all right? Well, he's the God of the universe. He created everything. 
if fortunately in the Bible, we get an understanding of a God where, you know, you get other worldviews where it's, where it's Marduk or others who you have warring gods who somehow there is some type of, whether one defecates or however, oftentimes we know this, that from other civilizations, humanity comes about because of violence and humanity is always considered pretty much the lowest rung that you can imagine in terms of worth, in terms of value. And yet right out of Genesis, right out of the gate, you get God saying, this is good, this is good, this is good. I'm creating male and female in my very image. And then you get in Genesis 9, you get, obviously, if you spill man's blood, then your blood will be spilt, showing everybody has worth and value. And then you move down to Isaiah, Ezekiel 7, Isaiah 58, Isaiah 1, um, Micah 6, 8. I mean, I, I could list endless amounts of passages in the Old Testament. We, like, we don't even have to touch the New Testament, where it talks exceedingly exceedingly about how God is always even disadvantaging himself for the sake of connecting with the poor. And it is so easy. Any Old Testament scholar can get to the point of, of saying that God basically states clearly with over 400 times social justice is, is mentioned when it comes to the poor in the Old Testament alone. And God's love his ability to connect and then tell his people on a regular basis, commanding them, hey, if you don't give to the poor, if you don't reach out to the poor, if you don't even disadvantage yourself for the poor, you don't have any type of relationship with me. None. Like, like that's it. You can pray as much as you want. You can be as holy as you'd like. We see this with the Pharisees later. We see it here with the Levites. But you're not a, you're, you're not, you don't have anything to do with me unless you live for social justice, reaching out to the orphan, the widow, those who are in distress. And so this is the theme over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And obviously, you know, if we go into the New Testament, moral law or ethics that Jesus promulgates, it just gets heightened exponentially. And so, yeah, Skyler brought up some, some good, tricky texts, good points, I think, one interesting one with Abraham, I mean, if you look at, say, Deuteronomy 4, you look at the wisdom that came from the Israelites alone and how they would reach the nations. I think the wisdom from the Israelites and what God was doing with the Israelites to reach the nations clearly has happened. No religion comes even close to traveling as well as the Christian faith, says Alam and Sana up at Yale. Robert Price of Princeton, many have said this. And I think Deuteronomy 4 was prophetic in that kind of way, because there's obviously something impressive, something attractive about the God in the Bible, and we don't even have to get into grace. I mean, that was actually the main reason why so many were coming to believe in Christ was because of something called grace, which we could talk about, but maybe for another time. But we see this grace throughout the Old Testament. We could go, you know, every time you look at, say, the flood narrative, you got to go to Jonah. I mean, look at God, how many times he forgives Jonah. He even puts him in the, in the belly of a whale, and yet then he forgives him again. And obviously that's typology for the death and resurrection of Christ. But then what happens? Jonah is still running from God. He's tremendously self-righteous. God sneers at the self-righteous himself. And then he looks at the Ninevites, and he says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. 
Christ's, connect them to me, get them to repent and change their ways. They would have been the equivalent of modern day ISIS. And yet God cares about them, even wants them to come to know him. Okay, that's that's off our radar. Let's be honest. I mean, in our culture today, where we think we are all about, you know, oh, love for everybody. And it's all just emotion. It's no real action oftentimes, at least when I see, you know, us Americans frequently, it's just those romanticism and and yes, everybody deserves an equal shake. And but if I ever share this with somebody that that God actually wants somebody like ISIS actually to repent and even come to know Him and enter the kingdom of God, whoa, 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 that's a little too far. Whoa, whoa, you know, an abuser—that's a little too far. They're too far from anything potentially eternal. You know, they're damned. They abused a kid, or whoa, a murderer. Yikes! Come on now. Any good person on the inside would never murder and would never do anything that bad. So let's exclude them. Throughout the entire Old Testament, there is no exclusion. There's judgment, and Skyler brought up some some good passages on that. But it's always pushing to ultimate inclusion, which is all of the nations coming to know God. Yeah, James, how many minutes does he have? Clifford. Several minutes. All right. These are a lot of hard questions, and thank you so much for raising them. First point, Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees pressed Jesus. Hey, Jesus, is a man allowed to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus goes back to Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. And the Pharisees pressed Jesus further. Well, then why did Moses command men to give their wives a certificate of divorce and then divorce them? And Jesus responds, Moses did this because God is allowing this because of the hardness of your heart. The Mosaic law in the Old Testament had a lot to do with God accommodating the hardness of human hearts. If anybody thinks that the Mosaic law is equal to the moral law in the Old Testament, they've not read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Clearly, Clearly, there is a moral progression that occurs, and God is attacking evil in individuals and in social institutions gradually, not right away, but gradually. How many people died in the Civil War? About 600,000 in order to abolish slavery. Does that mean after the Civil War that everybody's heart was changed and we didn't have any more racism in the United States? Hardly. Obviously not. The human heart has to change. And so from Genesis to Revelation, God is calling for a change of the human heart. And the Mosaic Law is God dealing with some very sinful, very culturally bound people and progressively pulling them out of wrong and evil. In, Genesis, in Galatians 3.24, the Apostle Paul writes that the law of God in the Old Testament is a tutor, a tutor that points us to Christ. So when you read in context, you begin to realize that a lot of those Mosaic laws in the Old Testament were not God's timeless wisdom. Instead, they were God accommodating a sinful people and slowly, gradually bringing them out of that. But the ultimate goal was to transform the heart because you can't legislate morality and change the human heart. 
You can change some behavior, I would agree, by legislating morality, but that is not the intent of the Bible, to legislate morality. Instead, obviously, the intent of God in the Bible is to change the human heart so that I begin to love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. The ideal in the Old Testament is found in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It is not found in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in the Mosaic Law. In the Moral Law, yes, it is found in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. In Leviticus, the statement to love your neighbor as yourself, yes, that is moral law that is binding on us today. Now, I find it interesting, Skylar, that you raise the issue of circumcision. Male circumcision back in the Old Testament days and today in the United States, male circumcision is not genital mutilation, has nothing to do with genital mutilation at all. Secondly, when God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, he's not giving us a handbook on wise parenting. Consistently, the Bible communicates in the Old Testament that child sacrifice is wrong. And God is testing Abraham in Genesis 22, not laying down a moral law that you better sacrifice your child if you really love God. So you've got to be very, very careful the way you read the Old Testament. The 30 seconds left. That's, that's it, James. You got it. Want to say thanks so much to our guests. They're linked in the description, folks. If you want to read or hear more from any of our four guests, all of them are linked in the description. So highly encourage you folks. And that includes if you're listening to Modern Day Debate via podcast. We're excited that Modern Day Debate is on podcast. So find us. And if you're listening via podcast, our guest links are in the description box for that episode as well. And so thanks so much, gentlemen. The floor is all yours for the open conversation. Thank you, muted, buddy. Yeah, dude, do you have anywhere you guys want to start? I mean, my thing is, like, here, here's what I'm willing to do for this debate. I think Dr. Josh and I had uh, kind of talked about it beforehand and said, uh, we're willing to grant objective morality exists, right? So we don't have to get into this, you know, what's morals or whose morals are really real. I don't want to debate morality tonight. We're just going to agree that objective morals exist. And I'm trying to just square off how it is God can commit immoral actions like the ones i laid out like taking women and children as plunder executing children uh how he can commit immoral actions be the moral foundation that's a supposedly perfect and can't do the immoral actions um I, that, that's where i think the, the the issue really comes to a head is what i would say wait so so when you say your you believe in objective morals as an atheist just make just flesh that one out just shortly for me in terms Obje of i'm just going to grant you object well it doesn't have to be it could be any kind of uh philosophy where you believe in objective moral facts doesn't matter if it's the atheist one whatever i just we grant you objective moral facts exist Right. So we like I probably God forgive me, Josh, I've already talked oh so much. Well, I think both of us would agree. Right. We could look at a story like uh, the flood or we're, let's stick with the one here. Taking women and children as plunder isn't moral. It's objectively a moral fact that it's not moral to, to do that action. So why is it God commits immoral actions or is it not immoral to take women and children as plunder? Therefore, God's not committing an immoral action yeah which passage are you talking about 
Oh uh, yeah, the one the one I was reading. So it's we can go into uh you, you, saying, you, yes. you oh, were no. talking about Deuteronomy twenty. Yes. When you got here we go. Uh so I mean literally all when you march up to attack a city and make its people and offer peace if they accept and open the gates to all their people, it shall be subject that all the people shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. I mean, that's the slavery part. But we'll forget about the slavery. Uh, if they refuse to make peace and engage you in battle, uh, you get to lay siege. Uh, it says, uh, keeps covering up. Josh, you, 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 you emasculate the city and then you take the women and children and cattle. Yeah, this is where you take the women and children's property. But of course, now that's for the non you know, promised lands, like the lands that have been promised to Joshua or promised that promised Joshua, promised to the Israelites. But Joshua is going to have to go take these by force to get these lands that are promised here. So, yeah, the, he's given instructions, the difference in how you do it. Now, when it comes to the promised lands, as you go further, however, when you lay siege to a city for a long time, well, no, 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 one before that. However, however, in the cities of nations, the Lord your God is giving you as inheritance. Do not leave anything that breathes alive. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Pesites, all the different groups, the ites, right? Those ones, you have to kill everybody. The ones before, just the other lands outside of those groups promised, you, you, you got to keep the women and children as plunder. Now, this is God telling these people what they can do. So God could easily be like, hey, that's a, that's not morally correct. That seems like it's objectively a moral fact that uh, that would go against my nature to take women and children as plunder and force them to marry you. We can go into that. Uh, that's what I'm trying to understand. Yeah, so, so we talked a little bit about this last debate when it comes to, obviously, it has to, there has to be a month, right, Josh, we talked about? before the marriage can actually be <laughs> consecrated. I mean, the plunder piece is interesting too, because it's a pretty harsh word, but then it's the, it's going to be the male's job as responsibility to take care of the female and the kids after that month, once they go into this engagement. And there is obviously a type of, see, if you're going to, I would consider that tremendously, a tremendously difficult passage, tremendously hard, there's no way around it in terms of from our cultural lens, the 21st century here in the U.S. saying, wow, that's an easy one. If we were back in that time, we would this would be a totally different discussion, especially if we were not. In and so for me, I still view it as contextually speaking. I mean, if we're going back here, because this passage, I think this very one actually came up in our debate with Dilahante and Josh. Um, so the month. In terms of taking care of as well, when it comes to the male, it's, it's not like he could just take off as well. There was something binding there. Um, I think also in those passages where literally you're supposed to kill everything that breathes, some biblical scholars say that that's actually more gracious than what a lot of the alien civilizations were doing when it came to the type of plundering was more so a level of rape as well as tremendous, all the different types of, you know, of well, a lot of it led to infanticide as well. So, so that's, for me, is, is that piece. But I would have to connect that. I, I think it's interesting because I consider, too, are, are we going to go to the moral argument or not here? And I'm, gl I'm glad we're not going to. I, th I, think that's, I think that's good. But you have to connect it to the New Testament moral ethics when it comes to treating women and children. I talked, you know, Michael Sandel at Harvard, he teaches that class called Justice. 
and he wrote, wrote that bestseller, Justice, Right and Wrongs. And he talks about how even our culture today, like we cannot agree on what is justice. We just can't. Everybody's shouting at each other. But I think in the Old Testament, and he alludes to this himself. I don't think he's a Christian. I don't know. He could be. Um, he talks about how the Old Testament has a comprehensive understanding of what justice is, and he offers it. And he talks about, you know, things like social equity. He talks about, you know, obviously the same laws for foreigners, as well as the native born, you know, Leviticus 24, 22. You know, the law of Hammurabi and other legal documents wouldn't be able to touch that. Uh, I think I think Hammurabi would be able to, it, it would be hard pressed to get anywhere near that. Um, and then that would obviously carry on to the Ten Commandments. And I, I think, again, the Ten Commandments in and of themselves, they've lasted for so long and people know exactly what they are today, as opposed to Hammurabi or other codes. No one knows what they are. They haven't lasted. And so why is that? I think there's beauty in it, in those Ten Commandments. And I think we can get into negative and positive freedom. And the Old Testament is all about a type of freedom that people shy away from this God and think there is tremendous just dullness. It's all, he's all about the no's and the negations. And you know, I think it's, it's positive freedom instead. You know, it, it's, I could use my freedom and sit on the couch and eat Twinkies all day, but then I probably won't live to the point of the type of freedom of playing with my daughter in the backyard when she's 14 years old, 15 years old. So, so that's what the, the Old Testament Ten Commandments give us in terms of that type of positive direction. If you want to spend more time, though, on this Deuteronomy 20 passage. Well, really, really what I'm just like is really how. OK, so let's I, just a couple of things I want to either acknowledge about the situation. Right. Let's just, it is immoral to take women and children as plunder. We all agree that it's an objective moral fact that it is immoral to take women and children and plunder. And in wartime, it is immoral to execute children. No, I cannot agree. I agree. Based right. on your presupposition of atheism. No, not no, no, no. I'm not saying my presupposition. I'm just saying, do you believe it's an objective moral fact that uh, killing children in wartime purposefully, right? It's not just dropping a bomb on somebody like targeting children. That is a objectively immoral fact. Yes, of course. Okay. Well, then God orders objective immoral act uh immoral immoral things to do he or orders people to execute children he targets them right so no, he does not. You, okay, so he saved the children in those stories the vast majority of times yes targeting is a little much. he did not target them at all he, he calls them out he tells you specifically take the babies in first samuel 15 specifically he calls them out he says hey the infants the babies the livestock, he does target them specifically, actually, in 1 Samuel 15. So, yeah, doesn't matter. He still, no, like, no, overall no, point, no, still, he no, commits, he no, tells no, people no, to commit no, genocide. No. Overall point. We don't have to go. He tells people to execute children in wartime. That's yeah, not. Well, in 1 Samuel 15 and 1 Samuel 21, you will see that there is hyperbole that's being used because all of the enemies that were supposedly wiped out in 1 Samuel 15 were not wiped out because they reappear. In First Samuel twenty-one, Josh has so a good. I think Josh has something good to say about used. that. Not all the people are being wiped out. Yes, do some innocent as a result of being connected with people who have done wrong. Yes, and that's tragic and that's sad and that's wrong. 
But to say that God is going out and targeting children is a total twisting of the text. That is absolutely false. Do innocent children get swept along in the judgment of a group of people that is led by some very wicked, warped adults? Yes, they do get swept along in that judgment. And that's most unfortunate. That's most sad. We agree on that. Josh, perhaps like you could, you know, talk about hyperbole and First Samuel 15 and, and maybe while you're about to do it, can I just read First Samuel 15 for people so they can know exactly what we're talking about? Yeah, probably uh, at least that at least that section. I think that would be useful. Yeah. So uh, so you know, your first Samuel 15, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord that sent anoint you to king over the people of Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. And guys, forgive me. I am terrible at reading live and doing all this. So this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid to them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites. Totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death. Here's where you target people. Men, women, children, Infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Let's keep reading because I want the context to be there for everybody. So Saul summoned the men, and they mustered them and at Tlium, 200,000-foot soldiers and 10,000-foot Jews. Actually, you know what? We don't need to go too much work. Later on, if you want to figure out like how they did it, you can go further. Um, but go ahead, Josh. I think you wanted to talk a little bit about that. Finally, you get to talk about <laughs> say something. Um, yeah, I mean... The textual history, I think, of First Samuel and Second Samuel is probably more complicated than what we want to get into here, and it's certainly not my area of expertise. Um, but First Samuel, this section in particular, is a little complex. You know, you're talking about the Saul and David stories, and um, people can read uh, Graham Ald's book uh, in the Old Testament Library. He, he has a discussion of this. But, you know, the, the question of like, what is it in, in chapter 27, chapter 30, 2 Samuel 1, you see like the, the Amalekites come back up because David has to fight against them, right? You see it in 14, I think 48, uh, there's sort of a summary statement. So the, the textual history of this is actually a little complex. The problem with looking at this as strictly hyperbole in the sense that, and, and that would be a question, I think, to ask what, what you mean by hyperbole hyperbole in what way? I think that would be useful to talk about. Um, so maybe instead of me trying to argue against that, what what would you mean by that? Hi hyperbolic in what way? Like who's being hyperbolic? Throughout the Bible, hyperbole is used. Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter heaven with one hand than with two hands to go into hell. Sure, but in he this passage... He's not calling for self-mutilation. He's calling right. for self-mortification, where I die to my use of my right hand to pick up pornography or to pick up literature that incites me to violence, to act like I don't have that. Similarly, when I was in high school, I used to say to my teammates, we're going to kill this team. Not meaning by that that we were literally going to kill the opposing athletic team, but meaning that we were really going to beat up on them. When you read the book of Joshua and Judges, you begin to realize that all the people were moved out of the country or all the people were killed is impossible because in the next book, Judges, they reappear and there are more of them. 
So obviously they're using exaggerated forms of speech to communicate a point. That's hyperbole. The sure. use of exaggerated speech to make a point. Right. So in this passage, can you be specific? Like what do you mean by that? Like God is being hyperbolic with Saul or the writers being hyperbolic with us. What do you mean by that? Specifically, if you could, because I think that's important. Well, I, in this can't passage. Be specific. I think I think both are included, Josh. It's, okay. it's a great point. I think I think that the people understood God's word in a hyperbolic way. And they also communicated in a hyperbolic way, both. Okay, so if I could, let me run this and see if we can't get nail down what I'm trying to get at. So if God is being hyperbolic, for example, using your example of like, we're going to go kill that team. Saul says, or God says to Saul in the same way, uh, hey, I want you to, you know, go, go kill the Amalekites, like go beat them up or something. Um is that sort of what you're saying that that Saul would have heard? Well, he doesn't really want me to like kill them all. They were to do battle against him, and they did battle against Jericho. And Jericho was probably not a city; it was a military garrison, not very large, because the last day they marched around that city seven times, and then they went in to take it. And when you look at the evidence for I, the city of I, probably oh, also lost another military that. garrison. So these were not population centers with a bunch of civilians in them. And so you need to be very careful when you take the literature that is being used there. Come on, guys, that literature is 3,500 years old. We're kind of asking you, but you're not giving us, we're asking you what is the hyperbolic language here, and you're just not giving it to us. So what is it? We know it's important. Where is it being hyperbolic? Is God yeah. being hyperbolic? Is it like the person, like, is Saul yeah, like, being hyperbolic? Which I, I, there is absolutely no way I can be more specific than when I said to Josh very clearly, both God and the author are using hyperbole. I answered okay. that question directly. Okay, okay. Let's let's all just take oh, a no, yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> so, so what yeah. I mean by this is, because I think this is important, right? Because yeah. it's I don't think there's any question, like Lawson Younger in 1990 wrote, wrote a really good dissertation, published it in the JSOT series, talking about like Joshua 9 through 12. He wrote another article in 2005, kind of re-upping on this. And I think there's some useful things there. I don't know what I think about his use of syntams, but whatever, he borrowed it from Liverani. So I think this is a useful thing. But it's it's important, I think, in these contexts to be specific about this. So if God is, let me let me explain why I think this is important. If God is saying to Saul, go wipe them out, like you would say, go slaughter the Steelers in this football game, then why is Saul rejected in the passage? Because see, if Saul heard that and said, oh, okay, I'm supposed to go fight them, you know, and that, that, that that's, why is he rejected in the passage? Because this is like this is one of the primary passages. Like this in chapter 13 are the two big places where we see Saul being rejected by God. And the reason that he's rejected is, in, is it's very specific in the passage. Like, you know, Samuel comes back and says, Did you do what God said? Oh, yeah. Well, if God had heard, I mean, if Saul had heard God saying, like, go fight him, I think he could have very, it would have been great, right? Yeah, went and fought him. But Saul said, Samuel says, I hear bleeding, right? I hear like the, the, the flock, what's going on? And, yeah, and that's right. What does right, he so say? He's, he so, doesn't so, say to Saul, hey, Saul, there's some babies still alive. Uh-uh. He says the king is still alive and some of the animals are still alive. Well, but he, he, yeah. So, so Saul says, 
Well, I saved the king and the people saved the sheep, right? The flock, the best of the flock. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. So the point is that why is Saul rejected here? Because I mean, he that, allowed the king, the leader of that group of people, to live, and he did not destroy the sheep. And and he was supposed to, to kill. No, but he was supposed to kill everything, right? The sheep <laughs> and the people, right? That was part of it. We just talked about that. Right? I think we understand now. I think we get what like you, it can't be. Oops, it can't be hyperbolic, or it makes no sense at this point anymore. Right. The I point think is. Yeah. Saul, Josh, you just asked me why was Saul judged. Saul was judged because the king was still alive and the sheep were still alive. Sorry. Saul was not judged because the infants were still alive. Sorry, let me just make sure that I'm clear. So your interpretation of 1 Samuel 15 is that there were whole bunches of people left over. That Saul's no, being punished. Why, why was Saul judged? That was your question you asked me, Josh. Right, I know. I it, sa Saul? it sounds like, it sounds like you know, in Saul your answer. Saul was judged because he did not execute the king who was leading the army to wipe out the Israelites, mm -hmm. and he kept, they kept some of the animals as plunder. And they should step up. They were, they were called to kill them. So that's the why he was judged. Up. That's what you asked. That's the answer. Directly, right. one to one. Right, understood. So I'm asking a follow-up. Uh, and because it seems like by implication you're saying that other people were left alive. It was just because he didn't kill the king and the sheep. The text is doesn't say. The text is silent, so we don't know. Well, the text isn't isn't silent. Well, what does I mean, it say? Well, it says kill everyone, right? No, no. How many were alive? Right? No, it, it actually, it does allude yeah. to. It does say they killed everybody with the sword. In right. the further, you you you. Everybody was not killed. Sorry, you can't you can't beg the That's question. That's why Saul was judged because he didn't execute the king. Samuel right. had to execute the king because Saul didn't do it. All right. right? So, Stay well, with the facts now, guys. Well, I, okay. Uh, so the text is clear, right? We can't beg the question and say, well, we assume that other people were saved alive and then prove that by saying that people were saved alive. Right? We don't know. The text is silent. You can't well, argue with silence. Well, the, the text, Skylar, if you want to, if you want to read that section, you can. Yeah, well, the, what we're, you know, the, the text isn't silent. <laughs> It literally tells you who to kill. So once again, are you so you're saying God didn't tell people to kill children? No, ever. I didn't say that. That was never asked. Okay. Me well, let me ask you. Let's just Tyler. let's just I ask the question directly. cross for you, and he All loves right. you. Okay. And I can promise you, when you get so upset this with is God preaching. in the Testament, this is preaching. You're, you're not debating. Reason. No, this no, no. Preaching. You guys are not debating. You're, no, you're preaching. And then Please stop preaching to me, sir. So Can we go back gonna, to the debate you're topic? You're going to keep on switching. Oh, and not respectfully. Hold on one sec, gentlemen. Else. I hate to jump yes. in, but just to redirect us back to the next topic. And then also want to remind you folks, our guests are linked in the description. And also want to remind you in the live chat, please attack the arguments instead of the person. Thanks so much, everybody. And I'll kick it back to you guys. Yeah, so it's perfectly clear in the text what God uh, wants these people to do. And we were, you know, when we go back to the main point, which was I was talking about, which is Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomy chapter, where, you know, Joshua has to go take these cities because they, as land, promised to the descendants of Abraham. So in order to clear these cities, what has to happen, guys? What do the Israelites have to do to all these civilizations? 
Does he go in and kill all the children in some of the places? No, the majority of them get moved out. And you read Where, where is that later, inscription? Joshua and in Judges. They've been moved out. And, it, and some are killed, yes. yes. Some are killed because they were directed to be killed. Correct. Children were directed to be executed. No, children are killed because they are part of a community that is in rebellion against God and that is whooping up on other people and is sacrificing their mm. babies on altars. And gotcha. God wants you to kill those people. And wanted God them to be killing those people. people. God wanted, yes, God wanted to judge those people and he had their children executed. And God judged the Jews later at the hands of the Assyrians <laughs> and the Babylonians and some innocent Jewish children were swept along in that judgment and they died. So uh, if, a Jew, if an Israelite soldier... To forgive uh -huh. us and to give us eternal life. So God is deeply committed to the well-being of children and adults, both in the no, Old he's not. Testament and in the New Testament. That, well, this, no, that is oh, wait, so wait, just blatantly dishonest. Why, yeah. you know, why when you talk, and we've had these conversations with somebody yeah. from China, somebody from Saudi, somebody from here. Mm. I mean, typically we don't get this one on college campuses. Like last time we were at a major university, this, this topic didn't come up once. And I found that really interesting because I'd like to do some sociology from time to time. And why does this one, Skylar, this, I'm glad we're debating it, but why this specific topic when it's so, in terms of just sociological studies, this is like the topic for white male atheists here in the U.S. If you talk to somebody in China, <laughs> okay. if you talk to somebody from any of the monotheistic religions, Why this, this is not a big issue. Judgment, even judgment of children, is not a big issue. Now, I'm not one of these guys who just I'm said, educating. oh, God can do whatever God wants to do. Like, I, yeah. I like wrestling with the text as well. Trying to do but though, you do kind of all that I can do whatever God can do though. Well, I mean, let, let me so let oh, yes. me. Let me, like, add yeah, of course. So, so <laughs> I don't me, know what the point was, though. Yeah, good. I, I, I just to observe to observe back. I guess. Yeah. It seems like, and even in this discussion, whenever we talk about the Assyrians or the Babylonians, I, I don't seem to hear about or the laws of Hammurabi. I don't seem to hear about all the good things that are in the prologue, for example, about social justice and caring for the poor and Hammurabi being a good shepherd. I only hear about the bad things. Which specific, like, oh, I mean, I, I don't know enough about Hammurabi to right, but I mean, you, you used it, I think, two or three times tonight. No, no, I used it once just in the sense of, in terms of comparing the Old Testament, especially the Ten Commandments, how God acts in the Old Testament compared to Hammurabi and other codes, how God acts, how he responds in terms of entering into relationships and actually calling people racial equity, looking out for and actually disadvantaging yourself for the poor. So we get to the New Testament, God himself dying on the cross for his enemies. My only point there was, I mean, you know, no other religion in that sense, especially if you go way back, what is 1700 BC? So a few hundred years, potentially thousand before Moses himself, you still can't, you can't touch it. And, and why do the Ten Commandments, why are the Ten Commandments really known today? But I don't too often hear people citing Hammurabi's code. Right. I mean, I, I feel like that's an, that's an interest that could be an interesting question. I think it has to do more with the religion that's been pervasive, not so much the code. But, uh, and I don't think we need to get hung up on this, but you guys have cited ancient Near Eastern societies uh, Babylonia specifically, and I thought I remembered you saying something about Assyria, but I could be mistaken on that. It might have been me. Well, I mentioned it. You're right. Yeah. So I, I, I guess what I'm saying is that 
I think that you guys, you guys utilize, I'm not saying that's wrong. I might consider it a little myopic, but like, I don't think that it's wrong to utilize the Assyrians to point out things as long as those are legitimate things to point out. But it does seem like there's not a lot of good things coming out of Christian apologists' mouth, uh, mouths about ancient Near Eastern cultures, right? It's, it's just, so, so it's just the, the Israelites. Um, and I just, oh, no. maybe no. That, to answer your question back yeah. with another observation, like it, sure. I agree with you, right? I mean, when we're talking about Old Testament ethics or uh, the morality that we see or the practices that we see, the values that we see in the Hebrew Bible, um, I mean, we could talk about good things. I mean, there's, there's, there's no question. We could talk about good things in um, the New Assyrian texts or in the Middle Assyrian uh, Proverbs. You know, we could do that. But um, I don't know that. I don't know that that would outweigh the things that we would have problems with. So I would disagree. I mean, because I'm glad we're not looking at it univocally. I mean, it, it's easy just to take a couple verses. I mean, that's why I love the the ism of of never read a Bible verse and talking about contextually and then talking about, okay, what are the bad ones? What are the good ones? And I am all for a God of judgment, a God of justice who takes sin tremendously seriously. You know, I, it was really interesting. And I was glad you guys were so honest with me, but the very first time I had a conversation with you guys, you had me on your show, Skylar. And the very first question was, we, Stuart, why do you like a God who says you need to be saved? And I think, I mean, I think that you showed your cards a little bit there, Skylar. I mean, why is that such a problem for you? What, like, what, what, what is so palpably frustrating and just infuriating about this whole saving process? And obviously, we see it starting in the it, old. It's century. not a big deal to me. It's really, honestly, like it's kind of annoying, but it's not as big of a deal as the things that I brought up tonight, which are like the ones where God is ordering people to commit immoral actions. He's telling people to kill everybody in these cities because you just literally, if you go to Deuteronomy 17, it even talks about people taking over the houses. Like the, literally the plan was to go through Joshua to the inherited land that they got through Abraham and clear it out. Everyone was to be cleared out in the places where they were inherited. All life had to die yeah, in the places I mean, that was other. I mean, so go ahead, Josh, please. And I mean, I think it's, I think it's incredibly problematic to cite things like, um, well, in judges, they show back up. Uh, it, there's something to that, right? And I think particularly when you look at Joshua nine through 12, there's more of an argument to make there. Uh, but like the Israelites, it's not like they get a high five in, in judges or at the end of Joshua for those Canaanites, you know, still being in the land. It's a bad thing. They're reprimanded for it. Right. Um, and when you read later in first Kings, I mean, the people that are left in the land, it's not like they're left and all's well with them. Like they're forced into corvée labor. Um, so it's more complicated and nuanced, I think, than just, well, they're, they're, they're still there. So it's gotta be hyperbole. Um, I think John Collins said it best, uh, on our, on our channel. Cause I asked him about this and he said, he said, yeah, I mean, every ancient Near Eastern king or ruler or any inscription that you read, uh, boasts about the numbers of people that they killed at, that they normally didn't kill that many, but they killed a lot and they inflated those numbers to, because that's what you're supposed to do. Right. And 
I think that if we were to go right now through some of the Middle Assyrian inscriptions of the I or Tiglath-Pileser I, and you know, read through what Tiglath-Pileser says when he says, the reason that I'm going and conquering the people outside of Assyria proper is because they're rebellious and they're wicked and they're sinful. And, and Asher has extended benevolent arms to them and has, and has offered to take care of them. And they have totally rebelled against that. You guys would say, yeah, well, that's, I call BS, right? That's propaganda. But it just seems like there's a slightly different view when it comes to this sort of language in the biblical text. So what's your point, Josh? Yeah, I mean, I think that the nuance that, Stuart, you were just talking about and not reading things like a single verse, uh, I think the nuance that needs to take place when reading through the Hebrew Bible is not to start with the conclusion that this is a you know divinely inspired text uh, and then sort of read it through that lens uh, any more than you would start with the inscriptions of Tukulti and Norta and say these are inspired writings. And so uh, like assuming that when Tukulti and Norta says that everybody was really rebellious and he's working for the deity, that that's actually true, right? But taking a step back and saying, wonder wonder what that inscription is because i think you guys would say immediately oh well like we see what the north is doing like that one's easy it's just it's not the case with the biblical text and i think that's the sort of thing that skylar and i are and skylar i'll be quiet after this but that we would hope that we would we would you know nuance the reading that way josh the only problem with your whole line of thinking is neither Stuart nor i have said the bible is divinely inspired that's not our point We've been arguing with the text on its own. We've been pointing out how Jesus points out that in the Old Testament, a lot of things are done, not in God's way, but as a way to accommodate some really mixed up cultures and some mixed up people. And neither one of us tonight have ever once said that it's divinely inspired. So I don't know where you're coming from when you put those words in our mouths. Sure. So, um, that's fair. I don't think you have said divinely inspired. Why, why did would you, you say we had? Why? why did you say we had said that? Well, What's going I, on, Josh? Take a breath. <laughs> There's like, uh, Josh, I mean, my uh, question, please. Uh, it I, might I, seem I, kind of obvious. I hate to tell I, you I, this. I think, I think you have an agenda. Cliff, Cliff take it to Cliff. Take a level down, bro. Just give us a second, Cliff, Josh. Well, with you guys here. listen a little bit. Now we're being accused of having agendas now. Like these, like you're literally, you got, you've done this, I think, twice now. Now you accuse us of having an agenda? Really? No, I'm asking, do you have an agenda? What is it? No, you, no, you, you originally accused me I, of setting an agenda. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying an to accusation. Yeah. What's so, going on? Never once um, did we say it's a divinely inspired book, therefore believe it. We're arguing textually. We're Cliff, reading Cliff I think he heard you the first three times that you asked him the question. Let Josh answer it. He heard you three times you said it. Go ahead, Josh. No, you keep so, on denying it, Skylar. Come on, be honest. Josh, answer, please. Yeah, I just want to make sure. Okay. Um, so there is definitely an assumption that I'm making here, given certain things that you've said. For example, uh, it does seem like you're assuming in your answers that um, if a biblical passage says X here, and that appears to be contradicted later, that there must be harmonization between these two. Uh, 
false. Right. Never said that once. Well, you, there must be harmonization. I'm, Never I, said I, that once, Josh. I'm just don't believe I, that. I don't believe I'm, that. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just gonna wait. If, if you if you can let me speak interrupted uninterrupted for well all right and would you please return the favor to me if you guys will not I, I will listen to you if you listen to us okay fair enough sure. uh, so that's why I use the word seems because uh, because I'm, I'm trying to be careful how I say this now um, so it seems like for example when you said well we know that it has to be hyperbole in First Samuel 15 because the Amalekites or other nations show up later. Well, that's one way to read it, right? That usually comes with uh, a, a harmonization of texts, view of the text, right? But I think more strongly, when you use New Testament writers, particularly Jesus, to explain things in the Old Testament, um, that, in addition to having a Christian worldview, and that is an assumption as well. I don't know that you've said that either. Uh, generally, those things together uh, indicate uh, a view of inspiration of the text. So I, if I'm wrong about that... You're wrong. Okay. So you don't believe that biblical texts are inspired? That is not part of the discussion tonight. We did not agree to debate on whether the Bible is a word of God tonight. That is oh not part of the discussion. Oh my Lord, this is so dishonest, Cliff. If like you can't, if you can't in this, if you and hold on in this conversation, if you're like, nope, I'm going to take this Christian part of me, take it, put it in a little closet, lock it up, say we can't talk about it. It's not open for discussion tonight. I can't tell you if I believe the Bible is inspired by God or inspired whatever word it. Dr. John, she was just a moment ago. Like, that's such a disingenuous and, and de debate tactic, my friend. Why? Why can't we talk about that? Why would you pick a fight over Tyler, John over a very big... I'm not an atheist. I'm not, not an atheist. I'm not an atheist by telling him that the Bible's a word of God. I don't think that's respectful. I'm not an atheist. Or an agnostic, whatever you are. You're not a believer in Christ. Uh, wow, whatever you are. Whatever you are. It doesn't matter. Whatever You could be a Christian. You could be a deist. It don't matter, Cliff. This is the Christian topic. I do want to kind of bring it full circle, returning to where we were. I want to let you know out there, folks, we do have maybe about 10 more minutes or so until the Q&A. And so, gentlemen, kicking it back to you. Well, it's real yes. simple. I am not going to talk with an agnostic or an atheist and communicate the Bible's a word of God because a person doesn't believe that. And to be honest with you guys, I could never show anybody the Bible's a word of God, so I'm not going to waste your time and mine trying to do that. Instead, I'm going to try and show why the evidence is the New Testament is historically accurate, and then I'm going to try and help people work through some of the difficult passages in the Old Testament. And for you to call me disingenuous because I'm not going to stand by the Bible as the inspired yes. word of God is so intellectually dishonest. It's scary. Okay. Absolutely well, scary. Uh, well, here's what I'm wondering. Uh, here's what I'm worried. Here's what I'm wondering. The word of God. I'm, I'm not going to try and. I'm trying to wonder. Okay, so this whole time when you're describing the Bible to us and describing what the Old, Old Testament ethics, right? Why would I not believe in a general conversation where we're debating Christians that we've had debates multiple times? Why would we not assume if we're talking about Old Testament ethics that you like we we like we can't talk about basic things? And it wasn't like Josh was looking to have a whole conversation about this particular thing. Josh was just like, hey, you know, I, I assume that you believe the Bible is inspired and you picked a fight over it. I mean, what kind of petty person do we debate over nothing? 
over nothing. You pick the fight because this is what happens when you kill the clock, gentlemen. Because you've been from both sides. Body in this debate. Don't be a one trick pony, bro. So bringing it back to the actual topic, we have heard criticism of the debate style of each side. So we do want to return to the, you could say, task at hand. And so are there any last concluding remarks on any of the Old Testament ethical issues? Yes, the Old Testament starts with God. And that's why there are moral absolutes. We're not talking about your Bible. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Why are you talking about theology? I thought we are just talking about the Old Testament tonight and ethics. I thought that wasn't assumed. I didn't think we were talking about anything with God right. in the sense of your beliefs. Yeah, if I could, if I yeah. if I could, like this is, I think this is, you asked me, Cliff, like what's my point? And that's sort of what I was trying to tie I together. To entirely. I wanted every, the topic just to be completely written out for us, handed to us, and determine everything for us. Skyler, a little broader next time, all right? Morality, not just two. Do you, get, you understand? We, we didn't pick the topic, bro. What are you complaining about us picking the topic? We didn't pick the topic. thing with Dr. Josh for two and a half hours. Oh, my God. You guys are whining about the topic now. You're whining about the topic of the debate. My Lord, you guys are full of Well, it's shambles now. We have Shambles to, of a debate. We have to, we're going to give it one more shot before we go to Q&A in terms Wish. of the topics. There are a lot of topics that I think the audience would definitely enjoy hearing your guys' thoughts on. One example being like the flood of Noah. Could be anything you guys want in terms of the ethics. Genesis 1 and 2 starts with God creating human beings in his image. Part of that means we have a conscience, the innate moral ability to distinguish between justice and injustice, right and wrong. If there is no God, there is no mind prior to the human mind who defines what's right and wrong. The Old Testament insists that God's character is just. The Old Testament insists that works in a fallen, rebellious world. And he uses the Jewish people, and often it's not pretty. And I can promise you, the Old Testament Mosaic law is not equal to the moral law. You've got to make a distinction between the Mosaic law in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy versus the moral law. The Mosaic law applied to a theocracy of Israel 3,000 years ago. It does not apply to us today. Jesus and the New Testament make that real clear. So, please hear me loud and clear. The Mosaic law is a tutor. It is not the same as the moral law. Due to the hardness of human hearts, due to the immorality of cultures, God accommodates people and doesn't set forth his ideal right off the bat. And when people say that the Mosaic law communicates the timeless wisdom of God that is dishonest with a text, that is not what the text is claiming. So I think just from that little summation that you gave, um, which like from a Christian standpoint, I don't think is inaccurate. Um, it, it, this is why it does seem like you take the biblical text as from God, right? As, as inspired by God, because you're using it authoritatively. You're saying the text says this and that therefore this. And so that was my point about bringing up, for example, the inscriptions of Tikultin and Orta or, you know, of Tiglath-Pileser, because I could say to you, look, 
these inscriptions begin with God. They begin with Asher. And Asher says, you know, Assyria is my land. And these other nations that are around that are seeking to, I mean, they're seeking to destroy my people and I've offered them grace and I've offered them benevolence, but yet they, they continue to reject it and they continue to be rebellious. And so I, I have to send my shepherd out to fight them. You know, I could say, well, look, Asher says, and I think that would imply that I hold that to be authoritative because that, that text is actually Asher speaking, right? And my point in bringing that up is I think very quickly, all of us would say, eh, is it really Asher? Is this just, you know, a, another king doing another royal inscription? And we would say, yes. And so, but here it does seem like you've come at this saying, this body of text, Old Testament, New Testament, is special. And I think generally speaking, when you, when, when Christians utilize that, they're speaking from some form of, you know, inspiration. Um, so that's what I'm asking us to. All right, but I apologize, Josh. I've miscommunicated. When I debate Muslims, I take what they say seriously about the text. I read the Quran and then I dissect the Quran. That's what I'm doing with the Bible. I'm not saying the Bible's inspired by God, therefore accepted, and it's all true. Rather, I am trying to show you why the Old Testament says what it says and how it is consistent when you read in context, both historical context and the context of the book, all right? I am not arguing that God says. I'm saying that the text says God says. In sure. the same way when I de debate a Muslim regarding the Quran, I say, yes, Allah says. Meaning by that, I'm quoting what the Quran says, not meaning that I believe in Allah, okay? So that's my point. I'm not that arguing that Bible's inspired by God, therefore it's all true. That's Ridiculous Understood. thinking. Ridiculous. So humble about it. I, you know, what I say, when you, when you, when, do you, okay, so let's just put it on the table then. We're all looking at the Bible. Then is it immoral of the God of the Bible to execute women and children? In the, in the passages that I've already laid out two or three times, all the different ites, the Amorites, the Amalekites, all this, is it moral for, as we're looking at it, is, is it an objective moral fact that God is immoral for doing so? It is no moral action. We all agree it's immoral to target children. If you could save children, right, if you had the ability to save a child, right, and, and make it safe or, you know, do it peacefully so soldiers don't have to go in and, you know, kill people, like in a warlike aspect, it really makes no sense. Like, we, we all agree that if, if we could save the children, but then we went ahead and like, you know, killed them. That would be immoral, right? We agree with that's a moral fact. God didn't execute any children. God has chosen to limit his power by giving us a free will. And we human beings have really messed things. That's not what the Bible says. You're not, that's not what the Bible says, Cliff. That's not what the Bible says, Cliff. I'm sorry, but you just said it didn't happen, but we just read the scriptures of where it happened. It's just dishonest. Let's let Cliff finish his thought. And four then I four paragraphs of it we read. Let's. I don't. Let we're. At, it's weird. We're emerging. Need to do this, but let's let Cliff finish his sentence, and I promise we'll come right back to you, Skyler. Skyler, I, I, I don't have anything else to say. I know you don't want to deal with it. 
right? We read the scriptures. We read them, and then you're like, it didn't happen. We're not studying the Old Testament. I don't know what you read. What did you hear? Like you, you guys said, hey, you left quiet to give me a minute to speak. And then it was like, I was in We read the scripture. Sebastian, thank you very much for your question. I want to remind you folks, our guests are linked in the description. We really do appreciate our guests. We love our guests. And it gets rowdy here sometimes. It's a debate channel, folks. And it ain't your grandma's debate channel. But we do want to let you know, folks, no matter what walk of life you're from, Christian, atheist, you name it, we really are glad you're here. And so welcome. And we're going to jump into these questions for the Q&A. Thank you, guys. With Sebastian's first question, who says, do you concede that the Euthyphro dilemma disproves the possibility of objective morality under God? If it's a false dichotomy, what is the third option? Well, it's really rather simple. Justice is an eternal value. Why? God is eternal. God's character defines justice. So that means there never was a time before God. So there never was a time before God when the value of justice existed or didn't exist. Because God is an eternal being, justice has always existed because justice is created and defined by the character of a good God. Gotcha. And thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from... Bubblegum Gun says, evolution is mathematically impossible. Also, creationism is not Christianity. Stop co-opting our word. We're not Christian. You don't know the creator. That one's got to be directed at me. I guess so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Stop changing everything. <laughs> what is this? Why, Josh? It's always your I fault. I was kidding. I no, I don't. No, 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 it should be. It should be somehow. I can't remember when evolution was brought up. Did evolution? No. no. It, it, of course not. Of course not. No. The Bible never answers the question, what process did God use to create? Therefore, it's intellectually dishonest to say the Bible says that God created using this process. So I, as a follower of Christ, I'm totally open to God using evolution as a process. But I can promise you evolution as an origin is not science. It's a philosophy of science that says... Sorry. In the beginning, there's no mind. There's no God. All right. Thank you very much. And we'll jump into this next question. This one coming in from Stephen Steen. Nasty guy. I don't understand. Is this like a new slang term that the young hip oh, people boy. are saying? He says, I'm making Nan. And it's spelled N-A-N. N-A-A-N. Wait a minute. Is that like the non? Like, like non-bread? From Egypt? Yeah. Oh, really nice. Good for you, Stephen. Sigma, any also says he's making Nan. Well, glad for you guys. Tom's chair has entered the building. Tom Jump's chair says, for both, isn't it interesting that the non-theists, let's see, they say, don't have dogma, and it's, so they, uh, basically they're accusing you of having dogma, Stuart, and Cliff. We'll give you a chance to respond. They're at least implying it. I mean, I, I think Typically, atheists and Christians are both dogmatic, just in in different types of ways. I mean, if you descri- if you describe dogma in the sense of who's being more intense with their opinions, well, then that's another question. So, I, I yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know how to answer that question. I, I'd have to ask T Jump what he meant by it. 
Gotcha. And, well, technically T-Jump's chair. But also, I want to remind you, it's just a sock account. But basically, I apologize to Skylar. I've, I feel like I've made this mistake before, Skylar. I put mm. your title as atheist on the screen. You actually would say that you're in the agnostic camp instead. So sorry about that. Oh, and no, no, no. It's okay. That, so that was my fault. But Matthew Powell's pet pterodactyl uh, says, here's $2 because I love James and Dr. Josh. Um Thank you. And uh, Dr. Josh, you have a fan out there. It's like, uh, but Spider the Ateo, thank you for your super sticker. Appreciate your support. And Baron Von G says, to make a long story short, God flooded the whole planet during the flood of Noah. And this included people who died who were pregnant women, babies, adult men, and women, Cliff and Stuart. They're asking for your uh, response. Yep. In order to cleanse the earth of evil, every inclination of the heart and the mind, Scripture says, was evil. I, it, does it seem a little over the top, God? Yep, seems a little bit over the top. It also seems a little bit over the top that he forgives people like the Ninevites, not only forgives them, but actually sends people to go and reach them, to bring them in, in order to enter a type of loving relationship. So he's over the top in many different ways. When you mean over top, you mean in, in executing children and babies, drowning there them. Once go. again, once again, this is God, God nice. literally commanding, right? <laughs> God saying, hey, I'm going, like doing an immoral action. It is immoral to drown a baby. Guys, what is your thing with kids tonight? Moral what is your thing with kids tonight? Uh, well, I'm just trying to, like, I'm trying to understand. God does immoral actions. Your God is the moral foundation. You guys can't even let me talk. You're so afraid of what I'm saying. Oh, boy. Right? Oh, your man. God is the moral foundation. <laughs> the foundation can't lie Stop because it'd started. be immoral to lie. If, why wouldn't it be immoral to drown a baby? It doesn't make no sense. Your moral foundation is a... It's a big old contradiction, and we'll that's why I keep a better moral foundation for this planet. I don't need to show something better. I just need to show you have a contradiction. I want, I want to hear it, though. I want to hear it. I don't need to show a better one. I just need to show your moral contradiction. It's contradictory. Wrong. How okay. is it wrong? What? Tell me what's wrong about my assertion here. It's immoral no, to drown no, babies. No, that's right? not what I said. I didn't say your assertion was wrong there. Okay, but right. Agree with me, right, man? You agree it's immoral to drown babies. <laughs> didn't we just say that? Well, I just say, yeah, you say yes for two hours. Oh my God. So you say yes. Put some light more. on your face, Skylar, and then we'll talk. I, I wish I, I could. This is my, my, my house doesn't complete yet. I don't know how to answer you. I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm just trying to say that the reason you say something's immoral, like lying, for instance, is that goes against God's nature. It's immoral to lie because God is not a liar. Right. Why isn't it like a step further? We add things like, God doesn't enslave people. God doesn't have children executed. Like, why aren't these things against God's nature also? Especially when you're all powerful and you can do it another way. You can do it a hundred million different ways that doesn't involve warfare, violence, cruelty, and hardship on the supposed people you have chosen. So you're like a Marcion then. Who would say God of the Old Testament, God of wrath and judgment, but then all of a sudden Jesus, the exact opposite. So let's just do away with the God of the Old Testament. Let's give everybody Jesus. Is that that's kind of what you're saying? Uh, oh, we were talking Old Testament ethics tonight, so I'm bringing oh, up Old Testament stuff. Not, it has nothing to do with the Old Testament, right? But, but to do with the Old Testament ethics. Well, no, we can talk right. about how. Okay. Yeah, we can get exactly. to. I like Jesus. Jesus is the man. I like him. Josh, you might want to jump in. I thought you. I just like there. So. If anybody's interested in this topic, this is a really good book for this topic. 
Um, and the reason the books like this are written, uh, like Eleanor Stump has an article in here where she's arguing essentially what most mainstream Christian apologists would argue, right? You argued some of that stuff tonight, guys. Um, but Schuyler's arguments are mainstream responses to mainstream apologetic arguments. So I like, I just want that to be clear. Like if you pick up Paul Draper's, you know, article in there responding, I think it was Paul Draper responding to um, Eleanor Stump, like it's right in line with what Schuyler is asking. So these things are problematic if if you have like a Christian confessional faith. There's a reason that these problems come up. So I don't want anybody walking away thinking like Schuyler is saying something crazy off the wall. And that's exactly what I hope we re- I hope Schuyler is not simplistic and i hope we're not overly simplistic in terms of what we're offering in his response because rabbis have been struggling with sodom and gomorrah a lot for two thousand years and trying to figure out what in the world is going on there and what's god's place in it yeah so it's not a simple thing like you're saying it's tremendously nuanced and complex right and last thing i'll say like that's to sort of bring it back to what i was saying i think that's my point the reason that rabbis struggle with it the reason that christians struggle with it the reason that that people that revere the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, um, is because of the way they view the text, right? If, like, nobody wrestles with, um, on the one hand, uh, you know, a Middle Assyrian uh, proverbial text, uh, you know, saying that do good to your enemy because this is what the gods, you know, brings them joy. But then you have these things that seem to have the gods committing evil acts, like nobody wrestles with that really because we go, we 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 kind of get the source, right? These are people writing this. Um so so that's Amen. that's what that's what I'm trying to get at here is I think this is more of an ancient Near Eastern text than what may maybe many people want to allow it to be. We'll jump into the next question. This one from Nate the lawyer. Thanks for your question statement. It says, don't believe what it says. Believe what they tell us it says. I think this is in reference to Stuart and Cliff. Uh, just a sassy, if you want to respond, you can. You don't have to if you don't want to. Uh, he's right. Everybody interprets. There, there's been multiple people interpreting here tonight. Gotcha. And my plea is read the text for yourself. Don't take it from me. Don't take it from Stuart. Don't take it from Josh or Skyler. Read the Gospels. Read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament for yourself. You've got to do your homework. There was no controversy. There was really no controversy. Just so we don't go off the rails again. Baron Von G says, let's just say God exists. I still would not worship this God. He kills for his own reasons. My guess is this is for you, Cliff and Stewart. Who were the most humane people in the Roman Empire? By far and away, the early Christians and the early Christian church. The sexual revolution came about, treatment of women, treatment of children, treatment of singles. We're welcome to the community. Guys, treatment, if you want to go really far, lepers, tax collectors, prostitutes. You look at humane, you look at, we talked about the Old Testament tonight. Over 400 times social justice is talked about in terms of looking after and going after the widow and those who are marginalized. And if you don't do that, you have nothing to do with me, God says. That's why we look at these things that in a non-univocal kind of way. So that person who just asked that question, very simplistic question, do a little deeper digging. 
this next question coming in from or thanks to your uh, support flat earth guy says I support this channel thank you friend and then also Sigma and he says can I get a reference for which passages are hyperbolic and which aren't seems like a critical distinction to have while reading the word of God Paul Copen moral monster right Josh I would not go by Paul Copen no. but that's, I'm not saying it's right I'm not saying it's right but he's going to have him in there He's gonna have him in there. Yeah, I, I I would disagree with his distinction though. Um, like, it's not it's not terribly straightforward. Um, so again, like Mario Liverani sort of developed this way to come at these biblical passages. This was picked up. Uh, I hope I'm not misremembering where this chain of events went, but this was picked up by then or then by. Um, um, Lawson Younger, and you know, if you read Dozman's commentary on Joshua, like I think there's probably something to, uh, you know, ancient Near Eastern war rhetoric. I think there is something to that. I don't think, and I think it's uh, unfortunate. I think it's often treated. Sorry. So we see it in the ancient Near East, right? when you see Egyptian texts and you see Hittite texts and they both say they won the same battle that they fought, right? They didn't, right? Oh, I absolutely, we sent them running and we, yeah, okay, well, they're, they're, it's propaganda is probably, a, it's hyperbole, you know, as part of propaganda, right? So there is certainly, uh, I, I think that in the biblical text, I don't think that we should then treat that like a kid with a hammer, for example, and say, well, anywhere that we see, and I'm not saying that you guys are doing this, be clear, I'm not saying you guys are doing this, just in general with hyperbole, I don't think we should be treating it like a kid with a hammer where everything is a nail, right? So anywhere we have a difficult passage that seems like, you know, we've got genociders, well, that must be hyperbole, it must be hyperbole, it must be hyperbole. You have to let the literary nature uh, of the passage speak. One example of this would be like Jericho, in Joshua 6, Rahab is saved. She's saved because she's the lone person that's saved. That's the whole point, she and her family. Um, but that's the whole point of the passage. Achan is wiped out. He's the only one. And it's because he and his he and his family, because they took things. Uh so anyway, it's the it's the you have to read it in its literary context. That wasn't very satisfying, I'm sure. Gotcha. And this one coming in from Muppet minded said, so Cliff, would you be willing in thought experiment to be my slave under the rules of the old Testament today? If we lived 3,500 years ago, yes. If, if we were living 3,500 years ago as Hebrews, as Canaanites, then yes. Gotcha. And this question coming in from Jupiter Darman says, Given God being pro-life, I've always wondered what the Christian justification for the, quote, test of the unfaithful wife is in the book of Numbers. Well, the, the test is not given how to determine whether that whether she was a virgin or not when she was married or whether she committed adultery or not. So no, there, there is no specific test that I can remember that's given. But I do know that when Jesus was confronted by the woman caught in the act of adultery, he said, the one among you who's never sinned, you go ahead and you throw the first stone. And he offered 
her and everybody else grace and forgiveness. I think they're referring to Numbers 5 with the Sota, the 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 wife that uh, ostensibly has sex with, uh, you know, commits adultery with another man, but the husband doesn't have immediate proof of that. He doesn't have any actual evidence. He just has jealousy. And so he brings his wife, uh, who's suspected of unfaithfulness, to the, to the uh, priest. And the, there's a ritual there. It's a very lengthy ritual in Numbers 5. Um, and scoops up some dirt from the tabernacle floor, puts it in water, and she swears uh, to God that she um, you know, didn't have sex uh, with this with this man, didn't commit adultery. She drinks the potion, and then she goes home. If her reproductive organs, it's difficult there in the Hebrew, if her reproductive organs swell or whatever, then she was she was lying and she can't have children. Uh, if not, you know, nothing happens, and she becomes fruitful. I think that's what they're referring to. While Cliff is looking this up, I want to remind you folks a couple of things. One, hope you feel welcome no matter what walk of life you were from. We want everybody to have a fair chance at making their case on a level playing field at Modern Day Debate. And also, our guests are linked in the description. So if you have not already, you can check out their links, which I have included in the description below. Whether you're listening via YouTube or the Modern Day Debate podcast, you can access those. Okay, so my response to Numbers Chapter 5 is that those tests were put together in order to protect the woman. The test actually functioned um, as a protective measure for a woman falsely accused of having an affair. Without the test, the furious husband might harm her, even kill her. So the law served as a deterrent against private acts of vengeance and retribution and ensured justice in a potentially explosive situation. So that's my understanding of why those tests were implemented in Numbers chapter 5. Gotcha, and this one coming in from EndoXD says, Adam and Eve did not know good from evil before eating the fruit. Is it moral for God to punish them when they didn't know disobeying God was immoral? Yes, because at the heart of it, it wasn't about, it's like parenting. It's like, does the kid have to know absolutely every time why he can't or she can't do something or not and so no that's a good point in terms of god did not add that level of clarity but at the end of the day it was them thinking that god did not have their best in mind which is why that ended up happening in terms of that that judgment intellectually adam and eve because they had a conscience and a rational mind knew that there was a difference between right and wrong but they didn't have experiential knowledge and the sin that adam and eve committed was not an intellectual sin it was a sin of the will where they chose to experience rebellion against God. That's the knowledge that they gained, experiential knowledge. I can know with my conscience and my intellect that to murder someone is wrong. At the point of murdering someone, bathing my hands in their blood and saying, now I really know experientially that murder is wrong. That's tragic. That's wrong. Gotcha. And thank you very much for your question coming in from Dustin Elber. B says objectives would be objective. I think they mean maybe, uh, yeah, objective moral truths. Objective moral truths would be objective regardless of any God's opinion. Opinions are subjective. 
Yahweh changing his mind doesn't change objective moral truths. In order to have objective moral truth, which is an intangible value called goodness, kindness, compassion, justice, there has to be a mind to define it. You do not have a pound of love or a foot of justice. Those are intangible values, and they do not exist separate from a thinking mind. Therefore, if there is no thinking mind prior to the human mind, it's the human mind that obviously creates these intangible values of justice and compassion, which means they're all subjective. It's all relative. I'm arguing our consciences tell us that there are some objective values, and those objective values point us to a mind prior to the human mind that creates and defines those values. But that thing you're referring to is contradictory because the values that you're talking about that it expresses, for some reason, taking women and children as plunder is not immoral, right? Or if it is immoral, your God, the moral foundation, who cannot do immoral actions, somehow is able to commit something that goes against his nature, something that goes against his being, as you just beautifully articulated. So I'm trying to understand how if, if objective moral facts exist, and certainly drowning a baby would be immoral, taking women and children as plunder would be immoral, how is it God can do immoral things? It's very simple, Skyler. If I pull a gun and shoot Stuart because I don't like his red hair, that's murder. It's not immoral. Stuart and I walk I'm into McDonald's and a guy is spraying machine gun bullets into children's bodies. And Stuart hits him high and I hit him low and we break his neck and he dies. That's not murder. That's killing motivated by a drive to preserve the innocent from being slaughtered. I don't disagree with that. Between murder and killing. Mm -hmm. God doesn't murder children, but God judges a people group. And when he judges the people group, innocent people are swept along because God doesn't cherry pick. He's created us with a free will. And there are consequences. He doesn't cherry pick children who deserve to be saved. I am grateful that there are consequences of my parents' love for me. They were incredibly generous to me. But I also am born into a world where people aren't just generous. They're also stingy and they steal. That's why I got locks on my door, Skyler. You see, the, it's not quite so as not my as point. you'd like to make it. It's an issue of motive. What's going on here? Right. I think what Skyler's point is that in that analogy that you're describing, if the guy that was spraying bullets had his wife and two children there and the police officer said, go in and take all of them out. Right, shoot the, the the guys shooting the bullets, the wife, and the two or three kids that he's got with him. Shoot them all. Like we would go, Ooh. we get Amen. shooting the guy. But why are we? Why why are you giving us orders to kill the kids? Now it's another thing if he says, "Hey, look, take that guy out." Yeah, and it exactly. sucks if we have collateral damage. Try not to hit the kids, but I mean, like we got to stop this guy. That's a different story. It's when there's this direct command take out those three kids and the woman that's what Skyler's point is i think give you a chance to respond cliff and then we'll go to the next one god is in a position to wipe to judge a people group because the evil has arisen so much in that people group that they are going to be all wiped out and that's what the old testament definitely does teach and as Stuart pointed out the example of the flood is is an example but also those children are going to be in heaven probably because they didn't do anything wrong. Those little infants and babies. 
But if there is no God, remember, Skyler and Josh, you ultimately have despair because innocent children die. Tough luck, kid. There's no hope if there is no God who gives oh, us. Oh, that's such life a strong man of life. I have this. No, I have. It's all despair. No, I actually love life. I have lots of things to look forward to. Like, that's such a, like, I don't, you know, you don't get to dictate what my life is like without your made-up religion. You're missing Okay? That's just not how we work. That's not how it works. We. You can create your meaning. You're exactly right. But that's not the argument. That's not Tolstoy's, not any moose argument. I'm just directly, what he said was just inaccurate. So I'm just correcting it. We're well, we take it up with Bertrand Russell, the great atheist, atheistic philosopher. Take it up with Friedrich Nietzsche, the great atheistic philosopher. They all pointed out exactly what I just said. Let me take appeal to authority right now. Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. It's exactly what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying. If there is no that, God, that sounds like an appeal to authority. Your birth is an accident, fallacy. and your death is an accident, guys. It's logical that the only thing that lies between those two accidents is another accident. Your life and my life. No, who, knows? who knows? Who so knows what's going to happen? Oh, I'm valuable, and oh, I have dignity. But that's my own pipe dream. That's my own fantasy. In reality, I'm a cosmic accident if there is no creator. I don't know what happens when I die. Maybe there's something else. Well, I'm not an anti-God person. I'd love for there to be a God. I'm your Josh would love for there to be a God. Into the next Such one. ridiculous accusation. You want to jump into Spicy Rhodes' question who says, How come the flood didn't fix anything? The world went bad again right away. What was the point of it, Cliff? Amen. Well, the point is that God judges evil because God is good. Why is God angry? God is angry because he loves. And because he loves human beings, when we destroy ourselves and when we destroy each other, he is angry. Every spouse that I know of gets angry, not because they hate their other spouse, but because they love their spouse and the spouse that they love has done something harmful and destructive. Anger, when it's not a selfish anger, is good. If, if my children get wiped out and I'm not angry with the person who wiped them out, I don't really love my children. So God judges because God loves and because God is just. Do you mind if I just, Go because I, 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 I think this is actually relevant. So the, the literary point of the flood uh, in you know the primeval history is God starting over. Right, the priestly author writing about God starting over, um, and so this this is the point of the text. He creates from Genesis one in this watery chaos. We see that watery chaos brought back. It's to show that humanity as a whole immediately descends into rebellion. Right, that's what we see, and that's why God has to then start over one more time at the Tower of Babel in Genesis eleven, and He takes out His chosen nation through Abram. Thanks for your next question. This one coming in from Triumph the Insult Dog says, Adam and Eve were in the beginning and evolution apparently didn't exist. So where did the different races come from? Where does the Bible say evolution didn't exist? Gotcha. And Alex Shannon says, just because someone doesn't have an answer doesn't mean you're right by default. I don't know who this is for. They don't actually put a name. Anybody object to that? I think, I, Stuart, I think you said something earlier to Skylar about, um, I'd like you to come up with like a better moral system. And Skylar said, oh. I don't have to have a better moral system. I just have to show a contradiction in yours. I see. 
that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think that makes sense. Am I am I going to speak to that or you want to... Yeah, I, I think that it was for you. I think that makes sense. No, no, yeah, that, that's legit. The, the point still stands, though. Okay, fine. Let's whatever it might be. Let's let's bring up the secular humanist manifesto, and, and you know whether that's our next debate or, or whatnot. It, it's still what is the moral system? Because I I mean I, I love humanists and I think they're doing some great things. But still, what, what is a moral system that truly makes sense? All are going to have holes, but then ultimately, what is what is the best one? And I know the point of the debate tonight was absolutely the, the morality of the Old Testament. So that, that wasn't my main point. You got it. And Alex Shannon, thanks for confirming that in the chat, that that was for the purpose. And then Baron Von G said, easy partner, citation needed, when and which Roman god killed babies? I can't recall any Roman god having killed babies. Who said a Roman god killed babies? I think earlier you guys were saying that, uh, I guess in, in first century Christianity, they were better than the Roman religious system. I think it came up then. Yeah, I think it's right. just like this general idea that like Israel somehow was more moral than the places around them, which is just just factually not true historically. No, that's that's Old Testament. I'm I'm going new with the early yeah. church. The church, for example, if you look at what they did for the community, I mean, if you were single, even if you were just single, if you didn't have a girlfriend, you were completely ostracized. And the early church was known to actually bring singles into their community. Uh, and then early with the plagues early on, uh, 300 AD, Christians were known to go and get people set up hospitals and pull people out into the countryside, many of whom died themselves. And then with the sex ethic, that's why Tom Holland, for example, will talk about how the Me Too movement is all about Christianity. And he's not a Christian, but in his book Dominion, it's a bestseller recently, he just riffs on this whole thing. Because the whole idea of actually women having value and women not just being mistreated by their husbands and their husbands being able to have actual prostitutes on the side and married multiple wives that was shattered once christianity came along so there's tons of different examples of, of that i think the pushback on something like that would be slavery in the early church would wait i mean read jennifer if you read predominantly of slaves what, what do you mean, I mean by that i mean read jennifer glancy's book we don't have to take up time with it here or ronald charles book but it's all about slavery in the early church so the uh, early church, you're saying, owned a bunch of slaves? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I, I yeah. disagree with that. I mean, I mean, it depends what you mean by that. Like, like you went to, they went to the block and actually started buying slaves and then had slaves in church with them? Like, Yeah, I mean, slaves, like, for example, and this isn't, like, my area of expertise, first, first century, second century, third century slavery. Again, read Jennifer Glancy and, and Ronald yeah, Charles yeah. on this, but um, no, it's worth it. It's worth it to read it. Um, but I mean, things like you, you know, a, uh, uh, a slave couldn't become a monk, uh, unless he had like permission from his master or something. Uh, but I mean, like they had slaves, they talked about, um, there were, there were very few church fathers that apparently stood up against slavery and they didn't stand up against it because it was immoral. It was because it was gluttonous to have like more than two. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely some truth in the last point. Yeah. I've never heard of the, the first point. Well, yeah. This next one coming in from SoxFan04 says that they're quoting Psalm 137, 8 through 9. They say, O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be 
who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. And then they ask, how is it ethical to crush babies? It is not ethical. It's totally unethical. And that's one of the things about the Psalms. If you take the Psalms as being communicating God's eternal wisdom, every word of them, then you're making a big mistake. The Psalms are examples of a human being open up and sharing their guilt, their anger, their hatred, their vengefulness. And so in this in this Psalm, Psalm 137, the Babylonians, the Assyrians have bashed Jewish babies' heads on rocks, and the psalmist is crying out in anger that is goes over the top, and it goes into vengefulness, and it's wrong, but that's part of what prayer is. Prayer is struggling with God over the issues that have really eaten my lunch, that are really grating against me. So prayer is not putting on my Sunday best and appearing to be all together. Rather, prayer is me being honest before the true God. So Psalm 137 is not commending bashing babies' heads on rocks but it's an honest expression of the vengeful feelings that the psalmist is struggling with. Gotcha. Thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from Brian Stevens. Do appreciate it. My twin brother, he says, do Stuart and Cliff believe evolution happened? If so, would they be willing to debate our dear friend, Kent Hovind on this topic? <laughs> Kent Hovind, you heard that name? Tim Anderson likes it. Kent Hovind is in the halls of creationism, a very uh, widely known name. So if you, uh, <laughs> you don't have to say yes. I don't know if I want to host it, <laughs> but they say, do Stuart and Cliff believe evolution happened? If so, would they be willing to debate Kent Hovind on this topic? Namely, if you don't believe, or if you do believe evolution happened, would you be willing to debate Kent Hovind? Now, this is part of what I was trying to communicate with Josh and Skyler. Whenever I'm debating someone, I try and listen and understand what they're saying and take what they say seriously and then build on it. That is why I was trying to communicate to them. I'm not going to try and persuade you that the Bible is the inspired word of God. There's no way that I can show any book as the inspired word of God. That is not me being disingenuous. If you want to ask me, do I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, and then why I believe it is the inspired word of God, I'd love to answer that question. But I'm going to listen to you and seek to understand where you're coming from and then address where you are, not where you might be one day. I wasn't I calling you disingenuous for that reason. I was calling you disingenuous because you jumped on – my boy, Josh, for just simply assuming that you believe that the Bible is inspired by God. But you jumped on it. Like, that's why I, I said that was. That. I, huh? said I never said that. Oh, OK. Well, people can go back and watch the video, how you start basically accusing them. Like, did I ever say that? Did I say it this time? And it's just like it's some kind of weird accusation you had. We should just drama. We should keep going. We will. Now, I just wanted to correct it, though. That's what I. It wasn't because you couldn't give an answer. Next up, Raw Nakedness says, when will Cliff present his completely, let's see. When will uh, Cliff present his evidence to a peer-reviewed journal? When Skyler stops interrupting me. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> Skyler. 
Oh, it's Undead. Skyler. We love you. I was a little afraid there. I was like, oh, no, Skyler. Oh, no. Uh, Rod, Rod Nakedness says, again, when will Stuart present his findings about white male atheists to a peer-reviewed journal? Latest I saw was 68%. I think that is out of the Washington Post. Saying, but yes, give me your email and I'll send it to you. Are you saying, do I understand right? You're saying that 68% of atheists are white males, or are you saying white males. that? Yeah, 68% of atheists are white males. On, it can't be on the whole globe, though. Is that just the U.S.? U.S., yeah. Okay. Um, interesting and juicy. And thank you very much for your question. Baron Von G says, let me make my point even more clear. No other God kills babies, just the God of Abraham. Why is that? Not Krishna, not Odin, only El Shaddai, they say. I don't know what, I've never heard El Shaddai. Marduk? Was the question other gods don't kill babies? Yeah, I think they're saying like out of all the religions... It seems that the God of the Old and New Testament is the only one that killed babies. Or yeah, you've got to be kidding oh, wow. me! What the Israelites were commanded by God was not to sacrifice your babies to God. That's what all the Canaanites were doing, and the Hittites—they were sacrificing their babies, their children, as an act of worshiping God. And Yahweh, El Shaddai, Jehovah, in the Old Testament says, "No, you are not to sacrifice your babies to God." That was one of the big cultural differences between the Jews and many of the cultures surrounding them. This is yeah, just I mean, simply not true. Israelites. Oh, sorry, Josh, you should probably tell them. No, no. I mean, like, I just, it's a, like, if we're talking about Israelite history, that's not true. If we're talking about biblical history, that is true. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And this next question comes in from Brandon Ardeline, who says, who is responsible for the most infanticide, Moloch or Yahweh? Moloch. Moloch. I, mean, I, mean, I don't have the definite numbers, but well, last yeah, well, time I, mean, I saw, I, I'd have to go back and check. I how many children were drowned in the flood? Well. I want to, how many, how many children do you guys think would be the number drowned in the flood? Like at least 5,000, right? Like you have to at least give us like 5,000 kids drowning yeah i mean the, the, local. yeah i mean I, I think well i don't I think, think that's that helps very as much, but, <laughs> yeah, but, really but i mean i think people probably should go read heath durell's book on child sacrifice in ancient israel um or francesca stavrakapulu exactly. on manasseh and child sacrifice you know again if we're talking about historical um israel then really uh you know israel was the evidence is is relatively clear uh, that Israel was very had very little difference between the Canaanites because it was a Canaanite culture, um, and so this is what the biblical authors are responding to. Uh, but again, yeah, I would like I would is Molech even a deity? Like that's a question. We don't really have evidence outside of first millennium Carthage, mm. uh, physical evidence anyway. Uh, of of child sacrifice in Canaan, we don't we don't have anything. We have we have Carthage, um, anything really reliable, and again, that's you know mid to late first millennium. I think as early as the seventh century, but so you have to rely on textual data to do that sort of thing, and of course that's not unbiased. Um, 
So it's it's that's a complicated question. I would encourage people to read it. Yeah, I don't think with Marduk, I don't think, I mean, obviously they're putting literally little babies. Abortion was very dangerous. Some abortion was going on, but literally little babies heating up that molten hot rock and putting little babies on top of it. And they were leading parents out of the city because of the screams. Yeah, I mean, this I is a very late representation. You have that with the God, the Judeo-Christian God, God of well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Actually, I think out of Genesis chapter 22, many biblical scholars would say that what happens with Abraham and Isaac is actually God speaking against infanticide. Right. So again, I think you're conflating biblical Israel and historical Israel. Uh, well, what send you me just, your studies. Send me your studies. You can't just I mean, read. Much. Yeah, I mean, read Heath Durrell. Yeah. He wrote the book on it. Uh, okay, I've got it. a I've got a video where I interviewed. Send me him. the slavery stuff too. You you said that one, lady's name. I, I've read so many secular historians. One second, Stuart. Just to slavery. just to be here, just in case I I was I wasn't sure that Josh is done. Just want to be sure that we heard. And I promise we'll come right back to you, Stuart. No, I think that's fair. I mean, I I I do recommend a lot of books. That's fair. Um, again, I think if we're strict, we have to we have to kind of pick one to talk about at a time. So if we're taught like that representation of the bronze, you know, statue, the arms, it's a later representation. Uh, what we have evidence of is from Carthage and it's from the seventh century down to, I think the second century um, BCE. And we have to be careful when we try to draw distinctions between what's being represented by like the prophets um, in the Hebrew Bible and what was actually being practiced by the Israelites. Those are two, I think, different things. So I'm fully on board with that. I think then we also have to look at the early church as well, because they were known for, I mean, the whole pro-life movement came out of the early Christian church. And so they were against abortion, but more so, so really geared towards really speaking out against infanticide, which was going on. And we know how many little babies and little kids were just left on trash heaps. That was like run of the mill. That was totally fine in, in early Roman empire. And Christians fought against that and completely shifted the tide. Now, that's really weird. Maybe they weren't reading their Old Testaments. I don't know. And you think about Joshua. Like how, many, how many of those, all those ites, the Hittites, the Amalekites, all the ites that we listed earlier, like the 10 civilizations, like after Joshua went in and took it over because God promised this land to Abraham, imagine all the, like, the people that were left over, like that the war had disparaged, right? Like we see how war tears apart countries. Um, and, and we think in the end, like God chose this methodology, right? Instead of making everybody just poof out of existence, right? Hey, all these enemies, let me give you a peaceful death. No war, no fighting. Israelites don't have to go in and do this with, with swords. They don't have to commit acts of violence against children or anybody. Boom. But which way does God choose the way that weirdly human beings of that culture and that time period how every culture wrote about their gods so yeah. I, it just yes he, he seemed like he was just moving right along with the tide of the time then all of a sudden jesus comes and boom it just way above all the other gods all of a sudden so why does he act that way in the old testament why why, why did he, must, he just start where jesus started off we don't we don't know must jump to the next one this one coming in from victor hallock says for cliff does god love good action because it's good or is good action good because it is loved by God? Goodness is based on the value and dignity of a human life. When I'm a good person, it means I am respecting your dignity, your significance, your value. 
the only way that we can have innate, intrinsic, real significance and value is if we have been created by God for a purpose. If there is no purpose to our lives, we have no value. We're just accidental collections of atoms. Therefore, goodness flows from the character of God who created human beings in his image with innate value. Goodness is respecting the value of a human being and loving that person. And that respect and that in the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you. And Mr. Lightning 20 says, In the land of Egypt, when God killed the firstborn of everything, isn't there a moral alternative to that? Sure, there are many alternatives. I do not know why God chose to create the way he did. But I can promise you that there has been some really wrong thinking expressed over the past two hours here. And that think wrong thinking is God is all powerful. Therefore, God can do it any way we can imagine. That is false. God cannot make a square circle. God cannot create a human being with a free will and then violate that free will and turn him into a robot or an automaton. And it's fascinating when God became a human being in Jesus Christ, how Jesus chose to limit his power. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. I have prayed that you would not, your faith would not fail. But Peter did fail in his faith. So even Jesus' prayer was not answered as some overwhelming, powerful thing that aborted Peter's will. And I can promise you, Jesus did not perform an overwhelmingly spectacular miracle in order to persuade Judas Iscariot not to betray him. So God has chosen to partially limit his power by giving us a free will, which means God does not approve of much of what we human beings do because we are abusing the gift of free will and doing that which is wrong. Gotcha. And thank you very much for your question. John W., thank you for your super sticker. I think that was it. And want to say, folks, our guests are linked in the description. We appreciate our guests. And so I want to remind you, as always, to be your fr your regu regular friendly selves. Oh, we did have one or two more. Pardon me on that. But want to ask you to be your regular friendly selves in terms of attacking the arguments rather than the people. Endoxd says, in 2 Kings, was it moral when God killed a bunch of boys with two bears for making fun of Elisha for being bald? When you read the text carefully, you will notice that those were young men, and they were violating God, and they were violating Elijah. They weren't just joking around. And so God chose to judge them for the wrong that they had done. And guess what? I deserve the judgment of God because I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. No, I've never murdered anybody, and no, I've never raped anybody. I've never stolen a large sum of money, but I have lusted. I have been greedy. I've been self-absorbed. I am a sinner, and it's only the grace of God that's going to forgive me and reunite me with God and give me eternal life. That's why I am in desperate need of Jesus Christ, because I am not this great person that I wish I was. If you do not deserve to be eaten by a bear, 
Yeah, I just I mean, want to let you know that. Like, you do not deserve to be eaten by bears. I don't know what you think you've done or anything in your life that's bad, but if you're ever face-to-face with a bear, right, don't think it's because you deserve this. All I right, want well, you I hope to be there to, to protect me, Skyler, okay? All right. But I deserve hell. I don't just deserve a bear. I deserve <laughs> hell because I've committed cosmic treason. I've rebelled against God. So I deserve hell. But Christ bled and died on a cross to forgive me for that wrong, to take the hell that I deserve in his body. I put my faith in him, and he's given me something I do not deserve, forgiveness and eternal life. I you just, know, uh... if I if I could, again, just to sort of bring it back to this, this is sort of my overarching point. If this, if we were to pick this story up, um, and again, put it over in a royal inscription from the Neo-Assyrian period, I think we would all be disgusted by it. Right. I, I, that's why I say I think that we're starting from a place where we're holding the biblical text, the Hebrew Bible, at a different level and then sort of working our way through it through that lens. And that's that's what my point is, I think, when it comes to these discussions. And I think the point you just made, Josh, is an example of breathing off the fumes of the Judeo-Christian heritage when you express your disgust. Okay. The reason you're disgusted with this something is because you think it's really wrong. Well, remember, Josh, if there is no God, nothing is really wrong. It's subjectively wrong from your perspective, but from obviously from an Inuit's perspective who wants to allow their baby to freeze to death in the snow, it's just right. That, that's right for them. And for a white racist to have a slave, well, it's right for them. It's all relative if there is no God. It's culturally relative. It's based on individual opinion. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't think that's why I think that it's wrong, but um, I think I'm using that far more colloquially than you're, than you're uh, um, maybe interpreting what I'm saying. But uh, I don't think that subjectivity necessarily means useless, but it's not my field of expertise. Um, so just because something's not like really... Right, really how well. can you judge? How can you judge on, the, to... the God of the Bible for... Allowing case, yeah. uh, some boys to be mauled by bears because case, they were disrespectful Josh. to Elijah. I mean, where do you get off with your right. culture 3,000 years later judging a culture that was 3,000 years ago? You're, you're making some pretty big claims, Josh. All right, well, let's I've... give Josh a full chance to respond to both that. Yeah. And then the question earlier, I think, was in terms of whether or not subjectivism was uh, worthless. Josh was still finishing that thought. Right. So, I mean, so sort of to go in reverse, to answer that question, the, I'm, I'm not judging an ancient culture. That's not what I'm doing. Um, this is sort of the material point that I'm making. Um, but I think that subjectivity can be very useful. It's very useful to me all the time. Uh, for example, when I came in today to the house, I said, it's kind of chilly in here. I went and turned the thermostat up. Well, there's no like really, really, you know, firm definition, objective definition of what chilly means. It's just subjectively to me and my wife is pregnant with twins so it's not chilly to her so we had to have sort of a discussion about it and of course i turned the temperature back down um but uh well yeah done. i mean uh, sorry so uh, yeah that was all i was gonna say we can jump into this next one this one coming in from mark reed says cliff if god can't violate humans free will how did he harden pharaoh's heart in exodus nine twelve? and killed the firstborn children. Nine times before we read that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, we read that Pharaoh hardened his heart. 
Jesus said, there's an unforgivable sin. It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I can play so many games with God that I sear my conscience and I can dull myself to the voice of God. And that's exactly what Pharaoh did. Gotcha. And this one coming in from related, uh, Dustin Eberly says, Cliff, did God know that Adam and Eve would go against his commands? Because God is outside of space and time, because God knows everything, yes, God knew that Adam and Eve would rebel against God. Does that mean that he forced them? No. When we say that God knew that, he would, that they would do that, what we're saying is due to God's perspective outside of space and time, he saw the future, the present, the past at a glance because God lives in an eternal now. Adam and Eve had a free will. They made their own decision. Did God know they were going to decide that? Yes, because he's outside of space and time. He's eternal. Gotcha. And this one coming in from Baron Von G says, God doesn't sacrifice children, but what about Yahweh sacrificing Jesus? That is human sacrifice of his own child. No, it was still Jesus's own, based on his free will, his decision to go to the cross. Now, it brings up the, the tough question of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But absolutely, did God do a type of sending his son, allowing his son to make this decision? Certainly. But it was full, fully based off of Jesus' own volition to go to that cross. And the Old Testament backs that up as well. Clearly coming right through the book of Isaiah, pointing to Jesus, Jesus' his own decision to go to the cross in order to make this great sacrifice, even for his enemies. Gotcha. And this one coming in from actual socialist trash <laughs> thank you for your question says we're the native or were the native americans not subject to a genocide because you can still find some living in the north uh, north america was the native american genocide hyperbolic obviously the native american being slaughtered is not hyperbolic it's an historical fact and it's tragic the way western europeans came into America and destroyed way, way, way too many Native Americans. It's sinful. It's wrong because Native Americans are human beings created in the image of God. And it's deplorable the way they were treated. No question about it. It's what Joshua did. They no, literally did the same thing. They went in, dislocated people, killed people, executed children. It's literally what the text says, guys. We read it earlier. And somehow we're like pretending like it, it doesn't, doesn't exist there. Like, I'm sorry, how did they get there? How did the Israelites get in Canaan? Right? Isn't the point of what is the point of fucking Josh? Joshua doesn't make any sense with the narrative. There's Joshua doesn't go there and conquest and take that land for the Israelites. God was judging, God was judging those people. God was not judging the Native Americans by the hands of the Western Europeans. But what the text clearly says is God was judging them for their wrongdoing. That's the difference. Well, with that, we want to recommend, folks, uh, one, we really do appreciate our guests. They're linked in the description. And so also, folks, that includes if you're listening to Modern Day Debate via podcast, you can find their links in that description box as well. It has been a true pleasure, gentlemen. It has been lively. It has been energetic. It has been fun. Thank you, Skyler, Dr. Josh, Stewart, and Cliff. It's been a true pleasure. Skyler, Josh, James, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. So much fun, guys. Thank you. Guys, have a good night, guys. Thanks, guys. Yeah, you too.
Folks, stick around. I'll be back in a moment with a post-credits scene telling you about upcoming debates, including tomorrow, Destiny will be here debating Pogan on Marxism versus capitalism. So thanks for that, folks, and be right back. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.